We, as a nation, have always had our arms open to receiving refugees in accordance with American law. We'll continue to provide an open heart and open arms to refugees seeking freedom from communist domination and from economic deprivation brought about primarily by uh, Fidel Castro and his government. So that was Jimmy Carter giving a speech in April of 1980. Many would later blame this open heart, open arms speech for Fidel Castro's decision to open immigration to whichever Cubans wanted it in the quote-unquote same period of time, which wasn't altogether false. Basically, sometime after the speech, Castro did open the Port of Mariel to anyone who wanted to emigrate, including prisoners. I think the Refugee Act was signed into law around April, end of March, beginning of April 1980. And right about that time, there was something called the Mariel Boat Lift. Uh, many claim that it started when Jimmy Carter gave a speech in Miami saying that we welcomed Cubans with open arms. And shortly after that, Fidel Castro, uh, for the first time in many years, usually the flow of Cuban migrants had been pretty sporadic since the 60s because Cuba uh, kept them uh, kept them from leaving. So yeah, occasionally somebody would be able to get out by boat, but generally it was difficult for people to leave. All of a sudden, Fidel Castro uh, opened the port of Mariel in Cuba uh, for, uh, for departures to the United States. And he was telling people if they wanted to go to the United States, they could, if their relatives came to pick them up in Marielle, good riddance. And that he also opened up uh, the prisons and let out a lot of not just political prisoners, but common criminals mixed in. Of course, nobody knew exactly how many of the people were just basically folks who had who wanted to escape communism and had, had relatives in the United States and who had been a political prisoner and who might have been a thief, rapist, or a robber. And there wasn't any real control. As soon as people found out that Mariel had been opened, a lot of members of the Cuban community in South Florida got boats and just started making the trip to Mariel and picking up their relatives or... What? Really? Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes they went to get their relatives, but once they got there, just anybody that could get on the boat got on it, and they really didn't have much choice but to... Were people drink, making money off drink. of this? You know, it's hard to say. I, I, I'm i sure there was some people making money. There, a lot of people, I think, were just going... Were members of the Cuban community who were just were going to get their friends or relatives or... Uh, just because they thought it was the the right thing to do. So, yeah, I think it, it was basically an uncontrolled uh, migration, the, these irregular flotillas. And one of the things we did to try and halt it was the, the INS had recently, I think in 1978, we had gotten for the first time authority to seize vessels and vehicles used in illegally in smuggling and illegally bringing individuals to the United States. So we started 
imposing fines because... Wait, but what did the... How did the boat lift actually have an effect on people in the government? How did the day-to-day change or... Well, it caused chaos, I think. We, nobody was prepared for it. It wasn't... I mean, here we had this law where we were sort of uh, going to go and select people out of camps in an orderly fashion. And, all. and I think our law was very much set up on the assumption that uh, the United States was not a country of first asylum, that our asylum program was mostly taking people out of established refugee camps in either Southeast Asia uh, or Europe or maybe the Middle East, but not really that there would be a Western Hemisphere flow and the, re- the country of first asylum would be us. So the system really wasn't set up for that. I mean, we didn't really have existing refugee camps or a UNHCR a refugee system in the United States. The only way really of processing the arrivals was under our immigration laws as amended by the Refugee Act, which meant detaining them, screening them, and then some could be paroled and apply eventually for green cards under what was known as the Cuban Adjustment Act. But those who's, who didn't appear to be, who appeared to be criminals or who had criminal records or, or who we couldn't identify, they couldn't be released into the community. So they had to be detained for further screening and given a right to a hearing on removability and also to apply for the newly enacted relief of asylum. But we really didn't have enough immigration courts or immigration judges to do this. I mean, they started putting people of all play in the Orange Bowl uh, to screen them because, I mean, and that's how the Orange Bowl is an athletic stadium. That's how unprepared we were. As time went on and we found people that we wanted to detain longer. We couldn't, you couldn't put them in the orange bowl. So we started putting them in military installations. Can you describe what was happening behind the scenes? Well, it was a little bit pandemonium. I mean, nobody had been, we we were just getting ready to start drafting the, you know, the legal procedures to implement the Refugee Act in 1980. And here all of a sudden we had this unexpected refugee situation. And I think unlike other situations, Marika, the Indochinese situation was primarily an emergency for the State Department because the people were arriving in foreign countries. The State Department was getting pressure from the, third, from the countries of first asylum to take more refugees. But because the Cubans were arriving directly in the United States, INS was really on the front lines here. It wasn't a question of State Department saying, these are the refugees we want to bring over help us go to Congress and explain it to them. It was like, they're here, immigration, what are you going to do with them? And I I just think we were caught a little, uh, I don't think anybody was predicting this. I guess these days you'd say it was an intelligence failure. I, I don't think anybody had perceived that Castro would release this large number of people within such a short period of time and that they'd come to the United States. So I'd say it was panic, you know, sort of high energy, but sort of panic about what do we do now? And there really wasn't 
much of a blueprint. I mean, there'd been a big Cuban migration in, so, 19, in 1966, but there weren't very many people around that had been there in 66. So who was in charge with dealing with the crisis? Well, it seems to me by 1980, the original commissioner of immigration of the Carter administration was Leonel Castillo. But I think maybe by 1980, he had left and David Crossland, who was then the general counsel, had become the acting commissioner. I, I was David's deputy and I'd become the acting general counsel. So it was really, and Crossland had close connections with the Department of Justice. So it was really Crossland and the legal office that were taking the lead on this. Uh, and then, of course, there were uh, Border Patrol and inspectors, but they were really more involved in the on-the-spot response rather than figuring out whether what we were doing was legal or telling Congress uh, uh, what we were doing and what our authority was. Of course, uh, as always, uh, it didn't take us too long to generate lawsuits about people we claims we were illegally detaining people or... Uh, weren't giving them hearings. So, and from a legal standpoint, we didn't even have, I mean, we had a Miami office, we had a couple judges, but there were many more people arriving than there were judges and uh, counsel to handle the cases, particularly when we started distributing them throughout the country. And we had to put them in a lot of old military, a lot of military bases or old military bases, National Guard camps, and they weren't particularly near any immigration court. I mean, Fort McCoy, Wisconsin's up somewhere between... Wait, okay, so <laughs> who, so and David Well, no, no, there were other key players. Uh, David Martin was a very key player from the State Department standpoint. And in the department, I think Alex Olenikoff, he, he was sort of the brains of the Office of Legal Counsel at that time. And he'd been assigned to refugee issues. And it seems to me he was also working with us on the project. So, and then we had our usual, you know, the, the people from the detention program and people, uh, attorneys from the section of the criminal division that handled immigration cases. We had a liaison with the U.S. attorney in Miami because there were questions about seizures of boats and fines. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So just a quick summary. There were attorneys from agencies in the INS, the State Department, and on the ground in Florida, all working to fix this crisis. So could you take me through what a typical day for you guys would be? We usually started every morning, uh, including weekend mornings in uh, David's office as acting commissioner. We had a group basically got around and sort of looked at what had happened yesterday and brainstormed. Usually we had a list of questions coming over from the attorney general's office. It seems to me there was a, uh, I don't remember whether they were associate deputy attorney generals, deputy associate attorney general, but a, a high-ranking guy named Paul Michelle who, who sort of was in charge of haunching this at the department and he uh, he, he usually sent over a list of all these, you know, what are you doing with the boats? What are you doing with detention? So, and then we tried to come up with the, the solutions. Uh, I remember another key member of our group was the Associate Commissioner for Examinations, who was in charge of inspections program and the adjudication program, a guy named Andy Carmichael. And he 
he had a lot of South Florida ties. He'd actually lived there and worked there. And, and so, you know, he sort of knew the lay of the, you know, he said, you know, he knew what the capacity of the Orange Bowl was and where all the military facilities were. I do remember we got involved with FEMA and they, I do remember they introduced themselves as we're here. We're the masters of disaster. I just remember masters of, and we're kind of thinking, uh, you know, we, we have the disaster, you know, I'm not, uh, that seemed to be a strange tag. But uh, yeah, and of course, in any brainstorming session, you get all sorts of either creative or off the wall ideas. Like, could we, could we stick some of the worst guys in Guantanamo and then maybe push them back through the gate at night when Cubans weren't looking? But then somebody pointed out that if we could push some out, they could push some back in the next night and that maybe that wasn't such a, a good idea. They talked about, uh, you know, were there islands somewhere down in the Keys or the Dry Tortuga where we could put people where, put detainees where they wouldn't be able to get away. But of course, there weren't, those happened, some of the islands happened to be uninhabited. So that probably uh, wasn't too good an idea. I think the Dry Tortugas were called the Dry Tortugas because they had no water on them. But, you know, you, you had your, your uh, both the creative and the sort of uh, uh, comical system here. So as I see it, the main issue with the boat lift crisis was that all of a sudden you had to create a very temporary system for processing and admitting refugees. Like you said before, for the first time, America had to suddenly become a country of first asylum, which it hadn't before predicted would happen. So how did you guys actually deal with the new arrivals? Well, uh, it wasn't too much of a problem. The ones who were screened and weren't criminals, uh, of course, could be paroled and eventually they could be taken care of under the Cuban Adjustment Act. But one of the problems was because these were regular admissions that Castro just basically opened the doors. You know, some of the people arrived with identification documents, some didn't. And there was always a suspicion that the ones that didn't have the identification documents probably came from the prison. Some people looked like they had tattoos from, uh, so they were identified as being from the prisons. Sometimes folks admitted that they'd come from the prisons. Other times, other people who were also being screened said, oh yeah, that guy, I know him, he, he's a criminal. But obviously Fidel Castro wasn't sending us nice little uh, files of paperwork and uh, court records on all these folks. So it was it was a challenge to figure out who the criminals were. And of the criminals, there were even uh, subgroups of uh, some could be solely political criminals and they might be entitled to asylum. Some were common criminals, uh, probably weren't entitled to asylum, but depending on how serious the crime was, some of course who were common criminals claimed to be political criminals. And without any sources of information in Cuba or any ability to get paperwork from the Cuban government, the screening became very challenging. The other thing is we obviously didn't, we didn't have enough immigration judges. I, you know, there were maybe, forgotten at that time, maybe 40 to 50 max immigration judges in the whole country. And uh, only a few of them were in Miami. So... Uh, and we had to put people in all sorts of locations like uh, uh, Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania, 
Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, McNeil Island, where there obviously weren't any immigration judges to begin with. And it wasn't like there was no normal work to do. So the existing immigration judges and INS trial attorneys all had dockets and regular cases they were doing. So we couldn't necessarily drop everything and reassign all the immigration judges to the Cuban project because there were regular dockets to take care of. So what we had to do is we had to create a system of temporary immigration judges very quickly. And we did that through mostly through the Department of Justice. We put out internal ads within the Justice Department for temporary assignment to be immigration judges. We got U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys, individuals in the criminal division. We found some people who'd been in retirement, some people who had been who were administrative law judges and other agencies. The people we didn't take as temporary judges were, the rules were no, nobody in the trial attorney program because we needed them to do the trial attorney work and nobody in the staff of the Board of Immigration Appeals or who was engaged in the actual uh, defending our court cases in uh, in court because we needed all of them to do the INS legal work. And we also probably didn't have enough INS attorneys, so we had to try and move people from from offices that weren't as busy, detail them to the Cuban project while trying to hire some more people. So it was a big, it was a big logistical issue because after a while, you couldn't keep using the orange bowl so we had to find processing centers. INS didn't have a huge detention capability in those days. We had to deal with the military and, and find, uh, or, or the Bureau of Prisons. We, Did you use private contractors? No, I don't think so. They were all government facilities. In fact, we, I think we, the Atlanta Penitentiary, I think, was closed, and we, the Bureau of Prisons reopened it for us. It looked like something out of a an old Al Capone gangster, you know, had 20 foot thick walls and it wasn't modern touchy feely prison. We, we had people at McNeil Island Penitentiary, which is on an island out in uh, uh, Puget Sound, which had also been closed. And that, I mean, the reason why that was struck home is my dad was in the public health service during World War II. And that was one of his assignments was to be one of the prison doctors at McNeil Island. So I remember my parents telling me all sorts of stories about living on McNeil Island and prison breaks and things like that. So sort of interesting. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> on another note, um, what was the public's reaction to this crisis and how did they view the government's efforts to handle it? Well, I think the administration was feeling a lot of pressure. Uh, they were looking sort of weak because we really were having trouble stopping this. The politicians in Florida weren't too happy. Cuban community, I think, was sort of wanted the people to come, but the rest of Florida wasn't so hot on, uh, on the idea of uh, unregulated migration washing up on their shores. And then, of course, as we started spreading people out, the state governors of the various places they were put weren't necessarily so happy about marry all Cubans being put in their uh, state. Indeed, there's a story that President Clinton, who was then the boy wonder governor of Arkansas, attributes his eventual defeat 
when he ran for another term as governor as having to do with Fort Chaffee being established as a Muriel Cuban detention center and individuals escaped from there and his opponent used that against him in the election he lost. So, so we tried all sorts of things. We tried finding the boat owners, but you know, the fines were $1,000 for each person and they weren't collected immediately. You had to go through a process to collect them. So that really didn't immediately stop too many. And, you know, I suppose some people, even if they got fined $10,000 for bringing 10 family members, so what? <laughs> you know, that, that was cheap at twice the price, probably. We seized boats, but and after a while, we had a hard time finding a place to put them all. We sort of had, had, a, had our own little uh, dry dock up on land. But then people just started getting... Uh, other boats, secondhand boats, boats that uh, were, were not in very good condition. Uh, and I do remember there was always a question of, do we, if we seize the boat, we're responsible for it. But what, so what do we do like with a boat that's sinking at the dock? I remember getting calls in the middle of the night about, do, should we take possession of this? Or let it sing. Wait, people called you in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember. Was this a border patrol? No, thing we, we had a U.S. We had. Why, uh, why call you? We had, well, because I was legal counsel, so we had a our counsel in Miami, the INS counsel, and the U.S. attorney were down on the docks, and we had questions like, should you know this boat is sinking? Do we take possession of it and pump it out, or do we let it sink? I think I told him not to take possession of it. I don't know how the Coast Guard liked that. You know, we tried criminal prosecutions for bringing people in illegally. Of course, mass detention was part of this, putting the people who we couldn't determine their identity in detention facilities. To be honest about it, the only thing that really stopped it, I think, was when Fidel eventually, uh, Castro eventually closed the Port of Marial. I don't think that any of our deterrents actually, that I could tell, had that much effect. And of course, we're getting sued by people, you know, sued on boat seizures, sued on detention, sued on asylum denials. So there were all sorts of problems coming up. And I think there was sort of the feel, I think there was the fear spreading among the public, uh, maybe fanned by some of the media, that we were being invaded by a horde of criminals unleashed by Fidel Castro and that the Carter administration wasn't protecting the United States from this this menace. So uh, all in all, it was a rude beginning, I think, to the Refugee Act of 1980. It, it just showed that there was a gap there that we that the law really hadn't prepared us to deal with. So would you say this was the point where the conversation shifted? Yeah, I think I. In my mind, this is one of the major events in modern American immigration history and certainly modern American refugee history. I think the conversation started shifting from how do we select and welcome refugees to how do we keep these people from coming in the first place if we don't want them? How do we protect ourselves from future migration? I think after seeing uh, what happened to the Carter administration? Of course, the Carter administration didn't get reelected. 
no administration after that wanted to be in the position of looking helpless in the face of a, an invasion of uninvited refugees. I also think there was a change. The, a lot of the sort of uh, colorful dialogue emphasized the legend of Scarface. This was, Castro was unloading loads of criminals and drug dealers and other uh, horrible people on us and that they were losing themselves in our society, that the Marielle boat lift had brought uh, all sorts of bad things to the United States. I, I think it also brought about a, a realization the Refugee Act hadn't really dealt with everything, particularly what we do when we are a country of first asylum, when there's a mass migration that arrives in the United States rather than our taking it uh, from a foreign country. I think it, it was the first in my career, which started in 1973, it was the first real use of mass detention as both a protector and a deterrent uh, to future migration. I think up until then, the INS detention program, you know, ever since Ellis Island closed, the detention program had been pretty small. And all of a sudden, people started saying, well, you know, we're we need the capability in case this ever happens again. And also started seeing, started believing at least that mass detention was a, an acceptable way of deterring future waves of migration. What would you say are the main lessons of the Marielle boat lift crisis? Well, first, I think the realization that the Refugee Act in 1980 didn't deal with every situation, that it really didn't have an effective mechanism for dealing with mass migrations where the United States uh, was a country of uh, first asylum, that are, it was really the first use in my lifetime, my professional working career of mass detention, both mass immigration, civil immigration detention, both as a way of protecting the public and also a way of deterring future mass migrations. I think it meant that because Refugee Act just had come into effect, it meant that a lot of the initial precedents under the Refugee Act at the board and in the federal courts ended up being against the refugee applicants, and they presented refugee applicants, uh, people that had committed particularly serious crimes or, you know, were threats to our security. So that probably got the case law off to a bad start. And I think generally it led to a jaundiced, a more jaundiced view of refugees, uh, uh, refugees, particularly asylees as potential invaders, bad folks. Maybe it's the origin of Donald Trump's bad hombres type of theory that the that we're being invaded and that any government that can't stop this is wimpy. So I think after the Cuban boat lift, every administration, I think, has wanted to show some muscle on the land and sea borders. In some ways, I think it was the beginning of a more negative and defensive view of of refugees. 
than had been the case before that. And as a result, later administrations shifted from humanitarian goals towards refugees to goals centered around enforcement and protecting our borders. <laughs> so could you talk about the Haitian boat lift crisis and how yeah. the Reagan administration... Right, exactly. Well, I think that during the Reagan administration, a lot of Haitian boat people started arriving in the United States. And of course, it was very controversial. Some people felt that the Haitian, many people, I think the Haitian community and, and some uh, folks in South Florida uh, felt that the Haitians weren't being treated the same as the Cubans, that they were being treated much more harshly. I think the Reagan administration made up his mind early on that they didn't want Haiti to be their Cuba. They didn't want to be perceived as being invaded by flotilla of uh, of wooden boats and powerless to stop it. So, you know, again, brought into play detention, but also I think the under the Reagan administration, they developed the program of high seas interdiction, not not just waiting for the people to get here and trying to deter them on this end, but trying to stop them uh, out on international waters where... Wait, sorry, high seas interdiction, is that not considered a deterrent policy? Well, it's also a deterrent, but I think it's also a way of, uh, of stopping people before they can get themselves into the U.S. legal system. And the, and the administration took the position, you know, eventually affirmed years later by the Supreme Court that the Refugee Convention uh, didn't fully apply on the high seas. You didn't have to have immigration judges. You didn't have to, you know, if the people were screened out, they were just taken right back. Uh, they were returned directly to Haiti. The only people that were allowed to come to the United States if they were interdicted on the high seas were individuals who were screened on boat by INS officers and and presented plausible claims for asylum. And there weren't too many of those. And as time went on, administrations stopped letting anybody, they stopped screening and just sent, sent everybody back on the theory that the convention didn't apply outside the territorial limits of the United States. Uh, yeah, it also served, I think, a deterrent, uh, a deterrent. Uh, but the practical answer was because they were able to return these people to Haiti, unlike Cuba wouldn't take them back, the people interdicted on the high seas couldn't get the benefit of the U.S. legal system. So they couldn't tie their cases up in court. They couldn't challenge the decision to return them. And as I said, that I think it was called Haitian Refugee Centers versus Sale. It eventually got to the Supreme Court, where a split Supreme Court sort of held its nose and upheld policy of high seas interdiction. Can you also talk about Haitians who did reach the U.S. shore, how they were also prevented from applying for asylum? Well, there was sort of a sort of a wet foot, a uh, dry foot. If, if a Haitian were, if they were taken off a boat at the port of entry or stopped right on the beach, they were considered to be applicants for admission, and they were processed in exclusion proceedings where they generally had fewer rights. If they got as far, you know, they got into downtown West Palm Beach or something like that and then turned themselves in, they were considered to have entered the United States and then they got 
deportation hearings, which gave them uh, a right to apply for bond and additional rights that they didn't have in exclusion proceedings. And uh, some people thought that was discriminatory. They said, well, you know, on the Mexican border, virtually everybody that gets over the Rio Grande is processed as a deportable individual. They can apply for bond. But on, uh, in Florida, if they catch the boat, is it, it catch the people as they're on the beach, then they consider the Haitians to be in exclusion proceedings and the detention provisions at that time were more draconian. So there were some legal issues involving whether people had, had made entry. And I think there was a, a general feeling, particularly I think among the uh, Haitian community and the African-American community, that Haitians were being treated less favorably than other types of illegal entrants in a very similar situation, that they weren't being given the same rights that, say, uh, Mexicans apprehended after crossing into Texas were being given. So throughout this, I think there, was, there were always charges of uh, discrimination based on race, uh, that the Haitians were getting a poorer deal than the Cubans and, uh, and some of the individuals entering uh, over the Mexican border. And there were cases of discrimination against Haitians in the court system, right? Well, I think there was also a concern. I mean, at that time, the, uh, it was early on, I think, in the big AIDS uh, situation. And I think there was a widespread belief that Haitians were major carriers of, of AIDS, that Haitians and gay individuals were major sources of, uh, of AIDS, so that there were all sorts of potential health risks with, uh, with allowing Haitians into the United States. Did any of those negative stereotypes they affect how Haitians' cases were processed? <sighs> uh, boy, that's hard to say on a, on a case-by-case bed, but I, I have a feeling, I mean, Haitian asylum grant rates have always been sort of historically low, Yet Haiti has certainly consistently been one of the most repressive and uh, dangerous countries in the hemisphere. It's, it's basically, I, I think it, many would fairly characterize it as a failed state, yet Haitians seem to have a very difficult climb <laughs> to get asylum. So I think it's hard to say how much it influenced individual cases, but I think the government, you know, I think the popular notion in the government at that time was most Haitians are economic refugees. We, you know, they're coming from one of the poorest countries in the world. Of course, they want to come here to get jobs, but they're not really refugees in the classic convention sense because they're fleeing uh, economic conditions rather than persecution. You know, I I think uh, looking back on it, I think one could uh, reasonably question uh, that conclusion. It seems to me there was a lot of repression going on in Haiti uh, through a number of governments and a lot of people probably, you know, I don't think all the poverty was definitely inevitable. I think some of it had to do, you know, one, one court, maybe it was a Ninth Circuit, found that basically the government of Haiti was a kleptocracy where, you know, stealing from the people was just a, a way of life and anybody who resisted it uh, would be in trouble. So I think perhaps, you know, the positions the government took and the claims that everybody was a, 
uh, an economic refugee might have been influenced by the proximity of Haiti and uh, the general uh, desire not to have a large migration of Haitians that we couldn't control. And I think I'm sure that part wasn't of it... There a, wasn't there a case before the board when you were chairman where you dissented? Um, it was about a Haitian man who was seeking asylum on the basis of having been tortured in Haiti. Oh, yeah. That matter of... Uh, uh, wasn't that the John? Was it matter of John? Uh, it was one of the first torture convention cases. And my colleagues said that the conditions in Haitian prisons were just sort of tough luck. And I thought, you know, it seemed to me that the government was very well aware and that they had purposely maintained inhuman conditions in order, you know, it wasn't like this was a government making its very best efforts. It was a government that intentionally was torturing and abusing people as an exercise uh, of their authority and that what happening happened there was wasn't yeah it wasn't just the my colleagues said it was just sort of routine police violence but uh, i don't think it was i don't think that's what it was i think it was systematic torture of people in the haitian uh, prison system Right. My point is that in a a case like that, where it's obviously not an economic refugee, the decision is still against the person seeking asylum. Right. Yeah, I think there's always been a a tendency to discount the claims of Haitians and to attribute them to, oh, that's just what happens in a poor country, rather than to look behind the claim to see uh, whether it really fits the legal framework. I mean, we've never been particularly welcoming to Haitians. Always been a general fear that if we had a generous immigration or refugee policy toward Haiti, that Haiti would just empty out into South Florida. Now, since most of the Haitians who arrive here seem to be industrious and productive people, you know, whether that's a totally bad idea or not, I don't know. But obviously, people always dislike the idea of uncontrolled immigration. And you can see, I mean, even now, the president was reported to have made derogatory comments about people coming from Haiti, notwithstanding the fact that there are many successful Haitians all over the country who've contributed to our country at, at all sorts of levels, but the, there's still this sort of popular conception of everybody coming from Haiti is poor and therefore they're not worth having in our country, which uh, I think is demonstrably false, but it still persists. So how was high seas interdiction justified? Well, high seas interdiction was justified, I think, as a national security measure. I mean, as I remember, we Part of it, we invoked uh, a section of the Act 212F that gave the president authority to, similar to what Trump is doing on the the travel ban cases, that to protect national security, the president could suspend the admission of any class of individuals. And in this case, he directed the Coast Guard to prevent them from getting to U.S. territorial waters and that that was permitted uh, under the immigration laws. So that, 
you know, there was probably more, there was actually an Office of Legal Counsel opinion on it, but as I remember, that was one of the primary things they relied on was Section 212F. And it's actually set forth in the Sale versus Haitian Refugee Center's case. You know, the other part of it, I think, was the some of the legislative history of the of the 1952 Refugee Convention had indicated that that at least some of the signatories didn't. The 1952. Yes, the Refugee Convention was uh, was first signed in 1952. We weren't a signatory. We didn't become a signatory until we signed the 1967 Protocol, which incorporated the convention. But I think they went back and looked at the history of the 52 Convention and found that the many of the contracting states had indicated that it, that the convention didn't have any extraterritorial effect, that it, it wasn't binding outside the actual territory of the signatory countries. And I think the Supreme Court cited that also. Right, like we still spill oil in the sea. <laughs> And throw waste yeah. where we want. So right, the the, the congressional understanding at the time uh, we adopted uh, the Refugee Act was that the you know that like the convention that this wouldn't apply outside of U.S. Uh, territory. I think there were some arguments against that, which some of the dissenting judges picked up. But it was basically based on this was necessary to protect the security of the United States from. Unscreened, mass unscreened admissions or mass unscreened migration to the United States. And unlike Cuba, we actually had an agreement with the Haitian government to return people to Haiti. So, uh, you know, we also claimed that we, you know, we were doing this by agreement with the Haitian government. Now, how that would have overcome, uh, how that would have made it legal if the Haitian government were persecuting the people, I don't know. But and I think part of the moral justification, if you can have one, was that uh, many of these boats were leaky boats that were going to sink before they got there and that the Coast Guard was actually saving lives by picking the people up before their boats sank uh, in the Windward Passage. And undoubtedly, as with the Mediterranean migration, some of the leaky boats did sink and people drowned. So. I'm, I'm not in any way saying that the Coast Guard didn't save some lives, but whether uh, I'm not sure that was really the primary <laughs> reason for doing it. That was sort of uh, an incidental benefit. And whether the people whose lives were saved really wanted their lives saved and be returned for Haiti, who knows? We weren't interested in things like that. So what do you think are the lasting effects of both the Refugee Act and its reinterpretation in light of the Marielle boatlift crisis? What do you think those are? Yeah, I think the, la the lasting effect, I think, is that, and you can kind of see it today, the security angle of refugee and asylum processing, whether it's really accurately portrayed or not, has, I think, come in many quarters to outweigh the humanitarian angle that if there's sort of idea, if there's any chance that admitting a refugee or admitting a asylee could uh, be a problem, we ought to err on the side of not admitting the people. And if not admitting a whole class, you know, if only, if there's only one or two bad actors, but 
if we have to not admit anybody to make sure we don't admit them, that's the justification. And to me, it seems like sort of a reversal of normal humanitarian law. I mean, normally uh, in, in asylum and refugee law, you err on the side of generosity and you give the benefit of the doubt to the person seeking refuge. But it seems like we've sort of reversed that to the point where we doubt everybody and we want to take very few people. Do you think Trump is being influenced by these past shifts? Uh, Do you think they're affecting his views on immigration? I, I don't know how much he's influenced and how much he's just taking advantage of it. I, I, I think he saw that there's sort of, I think he's he got the pulse of the, an undercurrent of anti-immigrant, uh, anti-migrant, anti-refugee feeling in the United States, and he's uh, played on it, and he's tied it to the whole idea of border security and national security without really much, if any, empirical evidence that uh, we've got a lot of terrorists entering through our refugee and asylee system. And actually, asylees are, uh, I mean, refugees abroad go through an extensive screening process and they are pretty carefully checked. The system is set up to provide a lot of safeguards and that uh, you know a lot of what the administration is doing is sort of fear-mongering. Yeah, that's true. So this is the last episode and we actually ended on the earliest part of your life, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it's been fun. You've taken me back to a, to a lot of parts of my life that had had been a little bit buried. And I, I think as we went through it, I think you reminded me that sadly, a lot of the other witnesses to some of the things I'm talking about uh, aren't with us anymore. And so in some ways, there aren't a lot of people to, to pass down some of these recollections about what actually happened during some very critical years in uh, U.S. immigration and, uh, and refugee policy. So yeah, it's uh, and I think I tie, you know, a lot of it reminds me of things that are happening now. We're repeating mistakes and doing futile things that our past experiences should show us we shouldn't be doing, and, the, and that our mistakes and that aren't going to work out. Yet, it seems to me people approach a lot of refugee and immigration issues from sort of a mythological basis rather than a, a, a factual or rational <laughs> basis. And uh, the beliefs people have about immigrants, about refugees, you know, really don't have a lot of basis in fact. But, you know, it's in the eye of the belief people, if the perception is it's true, people believe it's true <laughs> and they don't really care what the facts are. Then yeah. I think we have a, a situation now where we have an administration that rather than trying to set the record straight and do the right thing is actually encouraging people to believe the myths, you know, believe that Haitians are worthless, believe that Mexicans are all uh, rapists and robbers, believe that Middle Eastern refugees and Muslims are all terrorists, 
to take all the stereotypes and basically deepen them rather than trying to you know, sort of call on people's higher angels to look beyond the stereotypes and that the reality uh, really doesn't support this and that we are a nation of immigrants and that, uh, you know, we'd be stronger if we all find a way to get along and, to, and that we need immigrants. Immigrants are a, a source of vitality. They're, they're a great source of our progress and claim that sort of they're all climbing on the boat and sinking it. They're actually powering the boat in many ways, but but that isn't a uh, popular, I guess that isn't the way you win elections. Hmm, that's, um, that's a bit sad. Yeah, well, maybe it'll change. We'll have a chance to, uh, to work on it. But we'll see. <laughs>